Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Bonnie Prince Billy is a moniker employed by Will Oldham, a truly gifted and idiosyncratic songwriter, singer, musician, producer, and actor based in Louisville, Kentucky. Throughout his illustrious run as one of the world's most prolific and singular artistic forces to have emerged in the past 25 years, Oldham has spent some of his time performing the songs of others, often getting deep inside of them to make them his own. His latest release is Best Troubadour, a tribute to the works and work ethic of the legendary country star Merle Haggard, who passed away in 2016. Here's an excerpt of Oldham and Company performing a version of Haggard's song, Leonard. When Leonard finally came to California, he was 21 years old that I recall. He loved to write a song and pick the guitar And he came to hang a gold one on his wall The town in which he lived is not important But you'll know which town I mean by the time I'm through He soon became a famous entertainer But Leonard was a name he never Best Troubadour is out via Drag City Records, and Will and I caught up recently to discuss why he doesn't see the point in telling people that you miss them once they've died, how he hoped to start a dialogue with Merle Haggard, how a record like this one might push back against a thoughtless music industry and the way some of us consume art, the strange ritual of music streaming and telephones, unattainable goals and journalistic strategies, and much, much more. Will and I tried to communicate long distance using a web platform, but it failed us, so we ended up on the phone instead, and I am mostly just fine with that. Sponsored by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, this is Bonnie Prince Billy on the 317th episode of Creative Control with your host, me, Vish Khanna. He was on his way to heaven what he wanted. Most of all his dreams had been unfurled They once he even followed Elvis Presley And he wrote a lot of country songs from But he laid it all 
Hi, Will. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. It's nice to have you back on the show. I feel like it's been a long time. It does feel like that. I don't know how that happened. It, it happens sometimes. It just It's just the way the world works these days. Speaking of which, how, how are things in America, Will? Oh, yeah. You're not really here, are you? <laughs> uh, you know, if, uh, if there wasn't the threat of nuclear catastrophe, I would say that everything is awesome. That sounds fair to me. Everything's good in Louisville there? Yeah, everything's good in Louisville. Okay. I know that uh, your president showed up in Louisville recently, relatively recently, and I I wondered, I thought of you, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, he did. I think I was out of town, but I reserved my tickets anyway because I was hoping that my absence would be noted. Yes. That is a that's a that's a tactic I've noticed a lot of people using because he can't handle the uh, the lack of attendance. It's good. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes him angrier, and you're not supposed to make four year olds angry because <laughs> they don't they don't react very well. <laughs> Are you doing okay? I know this is horrible. Uh, I, I I do think of people like you, friends in America, uh, when I read the news a lot, and. I, I'm concerned, like everyone is concerned, but are you, you know, we're making jokes. I, I, I'm not really making, I, I really feel like if we live through this administration, I feel like things are being shaken up, everybody's being shaken up, and I really think that we all as individuals and as groups will come out of this a hell of a lot stronger than we were and a hell of a lot more aware than than we were. I think it's terrific but i do think you know that's a huge if 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 we if there's not a nuclear holocaust then we're we're going to be fine yeah no and i unfortunately it, like when w was elected you know someone said well what do you think of w and i said well as long as nothing you know huge and catastrophic happens i think we'll be fine and something huge and catastrophic happens yes right exactly and now we're in the same boat yeah that's a. I, I think that's about the best you can hope for is that there's not a nuclear holocaust. Although this is the most I've heard that prospect bandied about. Uh, yeah, a, what's his name? Chomsky was on the radio yesterday saying that that the nuclear clock that was developed decades ago is closer to midnight now than it's been since the 1950s or something. That was on Democracy Now. He said that I believe. Uh, I, I think. It, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard that too, and it. Uh, I I trust Noam Chomsky uh, a lot because of his, both because of his analysis and his foresight. Uh, and you know, I have children. I'm very concerned about this. I mean, even if I didn't have children, I'd be concerned about this. But I have my own children, and I'm very worried. So, uh, yeah. And yeah. yeah, I look forward to other ways of dying. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a good way to that's a good way to put it. Well, uh congratulations on this uh this new record. Um Thank you very much. This uh this this I, I suppose is it is it fair to call it a it's fair to call it a tribute to Merle Haggard, right? Yeah, I don't know what it's fair to call. It it's definitely it's a it's a it's a Yeah, I guess it's a tribute to or or to the work of to the work of uh Merle Haggard, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I pause there because I know that uh, sometimes I land on terminology that that isn't quite a isn't quite what you have in mind <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> when we talk about uh, 
versions or or interpretations or cover songs or what have you. And the last time we spoke, uh, I, I I left the conversation feeling quite enlightened about uh, you know how the universe works in, in terms of uh, <laughs> iteration and and you know different kinds of performances of the same seemingly the same song. And so I have all of that listening to you. You know, I have the good fortune of speaking to you every once in a while. So that informs, that has informed how I've I've listened to this record. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely. It became a different record many times over the course of the last year and a half. I would say. Uh, yeah. How, can you elaborate upon that? How do you mean? Um. Most significant. Well, the, yeah, most significantly, the big in the biggest way was just that that it was undertaken while Merle Haggard was alive, and with the thought that you know we would be making a record, you know, in tandem with his, you know, living efforts. Sure. Then right. when he died, that was you know that fucked it all up, fucked that whole idea up, or excuse, I'm not sure if I can say that for you, but you can say it. Everything Go ahead. Up. Okay. <laughs> I messed everything up because, you know, it wasn't meant to be a posthumous record, you know, which it, you know, yeah. So it, 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 that, that was the biggest obvious way that it became a different record. That's totally fascinating, right? The context of, of what you've done here, because I think people, viewed it totally as a posthumous tribute. I mean, I viewed it that way until you just spoke. So that's fascinating. Yeah, and I, and and I, that was part, you know, part of it is knowing that that people would take it that way and and it, it one a, a beautiful thing that that happened uh maybe 2 months ago is um my wife and I were shopping for shelves in a big old like i don't know what you call it it's like a antique mall you know so lots of vendors have booths there and they're mm -hmm. selling mm -hmm. and one vendor was selling old music magazines from the 70s and early 80s and there was a magazine called honky tonk that i'd never heard of and merle was on the cover and so i bought it and took it home and and in it he describes making his um elvis presley record yeah which he began when Elvis was alive, and then Elvis died, and and he talks about having these same feelings. You know, he was just like, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to put this record out. It, you know, I didn't. That's not what it was supposed to be. Yeah. And then I just, you know, said, well, forget it. I'm, you know, that's. I just have to go with my intentions, and you know, I'd already put the work into making the record, and and it was so it was like this beautiful ghostly voice from the beyond saying you know it's appropriate it's appropriate that you know we'd already decided it did, so it didn't matter at that point but it was nice to have sort of to know that we were continue because because more than anything i think it was an attempt this record is an attempt to again like when i pointed out you know it's a point it, it pay homage to the way my impression of the way that merle worked and the way he approached music and so this was a nice affirmation that the the tribute carried you know carried through that we you know that we really that, that maybe we were getting it right in some ways because in this very large way we we were our 
intentions were paralleling Haggard's intentions when he made his Elvis record, for example. It sounds like both of you are were put, placed in a position where you're like, is this going to be perceived as a cash grab kind of like a, 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 like oh, yeah, a that, yeah 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 that's, I guess that's one or and not only that yeah cash grab or I I just don't like it it really bothers me when somebody dies and then for the next three or four days you see all the you know social media postings or columns saying we miss you you're awesome it's just like because I think no, this person is dead. They can't hear you. And why don't you, you know, and let's do a tribute concert to this person. Let's do, you know, and it's like, why didn't you do it six months ago? Mm-hmm. You know, what, that's, that's no tribute to this person. You're, you're, I don't know, what are you doing? I don't understand. I don't understand why people pay so much attention to dead people as opposed to living people. And I didn't want to, you know, this is not, this was not meant to be a record for a dead man. It was supposed to be a record for a living man. Does that speak to your relationship with grieving? I mean, I think most of the the things that that you're outlining there are just people trying to cope with themselves, let alone the loss. You know, they're they're paying tribute to someone because it makes themselves feel better uh, about but, the but situation. Why? Why does that? That's what I don't understand. Why that makes someone feel better? Why doesn't it make someone feel better to pay tribute to a living person? Uh, that, that's what that's what confound I find confounding. Like when I, Leonard Cohen died, you know. Everybody's all about Leonard Cohen, and just like, well, he was actually better, you know, when he was alive because he there was the potential he could still make another record. And why are you, you know, <laughs> and what's the point of saying we miss you? Well, who are you saying we miss you to? I don't understand. We miss you. <laughs> I, I, I'm 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 not disagreeing with you necessarily, yeah, yeah. but I will say that I think it's it is an acknowledgement of that fault of we took this person for granted. And now, when it's too late, it, it, it's kind well, of a... Now, when it's too late, we're going to commit the sin again. Yes. Than say, you know, <laughs> they don't say, let's do a tribute concert to whoever that's still alive because we fucked up with Leonard Cohen. Right. You know? Right. Instead, instead, it's like, no, let's just keep making the same mistake and make it even deeper and more, you know, more egregious. To be fair, there are many examples of people actually paying tribute to Don Rickles before he died, or paying tribute to Johnny Cash before he died. You know? No, no, yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I totally hear what you're saying, and it's confusing. And I can see where there might be tension for you, particularly because now you're in this position of right. being perceived right. as doing the same thing that you're upset about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that, that is, I mean, it is, it is worrisome to feel as if someone would look at this record and think that it was created and conceived um, as a as a posthumous tribute uh, because I yeah I I don't like those things well you, you've been on a of late anyway there's 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 something going on within you in terms of reflecting upon these people you admire I mean we had a conversation a I guess a few years ago now about your your tribute to the Everly Brothers and yeah. um, and now we're you were and at the time they were both alive as well um, yeah and here we are you were working on this record about Merle and and then he passed so there's something going on within you've done this over the course of your career you've played other people's songs yeah. uh, what compels you to to do that, I, I know that's a sweeping qu- a question that <laughs> might force you to sweep through uh, space and time. But I'm just curious why? Why do you? Is it that compulsion to pay tribute to someone when they're alive and and to let them know that they're loved? 
Well, the furthest reach of the of the you know of the ambition of a project like that, like the Everly's project or this Merle project, like the the biggest and potentially most unrealistic um, goal is to create a dialogue with that artist or those artists. Is that right? The, the hmm. fact, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to. There are aspects of, of Merle's work that I find so inspiring and so compelling that I don't necessarily see get a lot of attention uh, and among you know among people that I know or talk to or read or read about you know it may, people may have awarenesses of, of what Merle does and how he how he did things but I don't hear about it so so, so I think well. This is so badass. Merle Haggard is so badass in the way he approached making music. Um, I, you know, part of me thinks, you know, I wonder if he is aware of, you know, is aware that somebody else is aware of how badass he is. Mm. Um, and, and that he, you know, has done things in such a, uh, an intense and thorough way that, there, there's a hope that maybe a dialogue could occur where I could actively learn something, actively engage, and and it you know doesn't. It's not crucial because part of the maybe the biggest part, you know, reward of making a record like this or making a record like what the, what the brothers sang is that it takes so much work and you get to dig in so much where you learn about the structure of the songs and you try to learn about the intention of the artist in the writing of the song, the recording of the song, the performing of, of the song. You know, so the rewards are built in. So it doesn't matter if you do hear from, you know, or have a, ever, ever get to meet or speak with somebody that you cover or go to the, the links that we've done with the Merle record or the Everly record. Um, it doesn't matter because it's, it, but that's just, you know, it's just like, that's one of your, that's, that's, that's a goal, an unattainable goal that you put because it's good to have unattainable goals. <laughs> that that means you'll never be finished, which is a good feeling. I mean, I, you've, you play many high profile festivals and uh, I imagine you've encountered many people you've admired. I, I do, now that you mentioned, I remember you saying that you hoped that the, the Everleys would connect with you over the project. And I, 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 I bring this up because I wondered, did you ever have, it's, I, I know, I think I know the answer based on what you've already said, but have you ever crossed paths with Merle Haggard at a music festival or anything like that? Well, it's interesting to say that because I, I don't really play music festivals, high profile or not. I'll play, you know, maybe one or two a year because I hate them. Yes, we've uh, we've talked about this at yeah, great length. No, I, I, I really I really don't yeah, I don't ever I'm I'm almost never at a at a music festival either as an audience member or as a performer. That's so true, there's sorry. Almost <laughs> zero opportunity for me to um like I'm I think I'm gonna a headline a festival on Saturday night called Do It Ourselves and I have never heard of any of the other acts at the festival. Oh in Santa Cruz, California. And I think that will be 
And then the other festival that I will play this year is Mekonville, which is a weekend of celebrating the 40th anniversary of the existence of the Mekons. Right, which is another record you just did. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Sorry, I totally blanked on that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you you are you like to uh, celebrate people. <laughs> yeah, and especially you know another another aspect of, of of why that is right now it has to do with the chaotic mess of music availability right now. Um, you know, as as the Spotify's and the Apple Music's and the titles cheapen music, you know, uh, you know, at, at an increasing rate, you know, making making it more and more worthless with every passing second. You know, in a, in a real way. When I say worthless, I mean financially, it has no value whatsoever, and yeah. or, or very little value. And tomorrow we'll have less, and the next day we'll have less, and the next day we'll have less. And so it's. You know, when when people, when songwriters or music creators talk about their songs as their children, and some people have this, you know, some people when they say, and and I think throughout history have always said, well, I'm not having children in this terrible world. I I, I don't, I've never understood that because I, it seems like you create a child in order to, if you have that kind of intention, you would create a child to combat the terribleness of the world. Exactly, yeah. Um, but a song can't really, you know, if, if you take the metaphor of a song being like a child, it really is a terrible world, and the song can't, you can't, I think I think we need to do a little better job of, of maybe tending to a lot of the music that it, that that is here for us now, especially as, as people are, you know, the powers that be are being so disrespectful and irresponsible when it comes to uh, taking care of our music that that making these records making the fanatic voyage record or what the brothers sang or this best troubadour record is trying to help make sense of of the mess that you know these harsh and thoughtless uh you know, money mongers are the, the mess that they're creating of our musical heritage. I know that uh, music is particularly impacted by this, and I understand your your concern and your frustration. But I've been wrestling with this a lot lately, and I feel like we're at a point where it's a complete cultural fragmentation that is making us uh, undervalue everything. Um, and and I mean all cultures. You're everyone is now expected to be uh, a really on top of it generalist you're supposed to have seen and consumed almost everything right and be fine with it and what you have is in the end you don't have any specialism so to speak like there's no yeah yeah, yeah. you know there's no expertise anymore because we've and i on one hand, I embrace that notion of being an open-minded and open, like having an open-ended cultural spectrum. I think is healthy, but at the same time, I've seen it have the opposite effect of just everything is window dressing. Everything's just background. It doesn't matter if you if you're actually invested in the things anymore, the way I used to be. Um, yeah, I mean, it's always you, you know, I, if ever I find myself beginning to speak with those terms, you know, about, I don't know, that 
it be, starts to sound like an argument, you know, that people over a certain age have probably used since we could, you know, put a sentence together. Yeah. Put a sentence together. And so I, under, I, I agree to some extent, although I feel like it's always, I, I think, I don't know, I, I, would, I would watch how much that is a, a symptom of are getting older before we make that kind of argument, you know, uh, in terms, of, you know, interest in terms of saying anymore, nobody's doing this anymore. Yeah, no, totally. No, I, um, I, I agree. As, as opposed to, you know, being able to look at, you know, look at the landscape of, of the economics of music and, and the logistics of distribution yeah. and say like, well, that actually is violently different. Um, because the other, you know, in terms of people, so I, I, I agree, but I think most about, you know, most people, most people, if, if we were our age in 1978, that we would probably be spending time with a lot of peers who seemed to maybe not be very specialized. No, yeah. and, and I do, I, I guess what I'm saying also is that I, I don't, I think I initially, because I'm primarily, I suppose, a music fan, I thought it was mostly music that was being impacted by this but then you i think it's occurring across sort of uh i get a uh, popular culture i mean popular I th- culture and the arts i i, I think you're, you're you're totally right yeah. yeah movies tv shows everything like we're not you're paying 10 bucks for netflix uh and you can watch anything you want uh yeah and, and people so, are encouraged to move on to the next thing as quickly as possible. Yeah, and you're, is, it, it, and that's what you know. That's yeah. So that's part of what I'm saying about making these records is is that you know giving people the opportunity to go along with being encouraged, if not forced, to move on to the next thing, which ideally will be this best troubadour record, and at the same time, not losing touch with certain significant things that have you know made this happen. Yeah, Act- actively, actively drawing lines and creating conduits from this time to previous times, in in and hopefully you know an affecting and vital way, not not a nostalgic way at all. Like it's not intended, of course, to be like we didn't. You know, I thought for a while, oh, I should do because I love Merle Haggard's record covers, especially from the 1980s. You know, I'm yeah. fascinated by them. I thought, oh, I should, uh, I, I you know I should get a stylist I, like Jennifer Harrow I was going to ask and take photos of of me being in some weird surreal ridiculous pose that nobody can comprehend you know <laughs> how how I chose to put those clothes on or choose that photo with that ridiculous facial expression I thought oh that that's a that's a tribute and then I thought well I, I I'm not sure how to do that without making it nostalgic and that's not what this is supposed to be at all like yeah it's supposed to be Pointing, pointing specifically at what kept Merle so vital, where you know there's so few people who work in popular music who are able to stay vitally connected and and importantly connected to their craft and their music into their 50s, much less 60s and 70s. Yeah, and I, I do want to move on shortly to talk about uh, Best Troubadour and your relationship with Merle's music and and maybe Merle as a person um even uh, you know uh, even though you didn't know him but uh before that it's just something occurred to me as we were talking about how we consume culture and how culture is sort of uh perceived uh 
Do you think that binge watching has had an effect on music consumption? Because I, I've noticed the big thing over the last few years is to just drop a record. No fanfare. It's just that's the big thing. Kendrick Lamar just put out a record. You know, it's just out all of a sudden. And then what that creates is that same frenzy of binge listening, I feel, before Beyonce puts out a record in the same way. Um, oh, that's interesting, yeah. And I, I just I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, this is the kind of stuff you and I end up talking about. And yeah, I, <laughs> I just I wonder. So. I, I think, you know, today National Public Radio has, has put out um, some sort of streaming version of, of Beth Troubadour. And, and I agreed to that. And as soon as it happened, I thought, you know, why did I agree to that? It's, it's, that's, you know, that was a, that was a stupid, you know, I, I thought, I don't know what, what I was thinking. Well, was yeah. Can you, I, I'm curious why, why the regret there? Because it means that someone will listen to part of it or all of it. They're going to be listening to it necessarily on a device, which I don't think is healthy for the listener or the or the music. Yeah. To listen to it on your phone or to listen to it on your computer. I don't like streaming music because I just think a music thing should be a music thing. You know, a guitar should be a guitar. A radio should be a radio. Um, I don't, you know, I just, I don't like that you could, you know, it's just, it's, it's tax time right now. Someone get a new Kendrick Lamar record, listen to it, but then also be communicating with their accountant about paying taxes <laughs> on the same device, you know, and getting interrupted. If getting so, so people will listen to part of it, all of it on a device, and then maybe they will feel like it's done. And they can, you know, and the record comes out next Friday, but by then there will be other things that they need to turn their attention to because Netflix will release a new series that's important that you ch- you know check in with and watch in the background or binge watch it yeah. or someone you know will, will put out a new record or a hundred people will put out new records and you'll feel like well I've already you know done the best troubadour thing I can check that off my list yeah 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 and and it's you know and I just think I mean partly it's that doesn't help you know on the on the barest bones level I actually need somebody to buy that record yeah you know it's it's i didn't it's not a gift to people it's not like here listen to it for free and then i'll make another one no if you listen to it for free i can't make another one well you're on a label drag city that has been the most resistant uh, uh, independent label that i can think of to these platforms i, I think recently they worked out something with Bandcamp, um but yeah. the, I, I to this day as far as i know you can't get Drag City releases on Apple Music or Spotify or anything like that, right? Right. Yeah, and I think I I have always been quite uh, I'm I'm in admiration of that. Frankly, just the steadfast. I don't know what happened with the Bandcamp thing, and I probably should explore that by talking well, to some people. Well, you know, one one thing you know about Bandcamp that people you know people will say, oh, that's now you can stream Drag City music, and and with the Bandcamp thing, that's not actually true. You know, Bandcamp is the thing where you can stream something that you buy. That's true. Yeah. And, you know, people confuse... Bandcamp is not like the others in, in, in that way. I mean, yeah. then you can create... You create, you know, your music collection. Spotify isn't creating your music collection for you. Apple isn't creating your music collection for you. Right. Um, and that's that's crucial. At the same time, you know, more and more and more and more, you know, literally, literally, I'll say every other day, I, you know, I won't say every day, but literally every other day, someone will... Ask me why? 
Why isn't it there on Spotify specifically? Why not on Spotify? Hmm. And I know so many reasons why, but at a certain point, it's also, well, if all of these people are asking me, who am I making music for? Right. You know, increasingly, you know, increasingly every day, you know, I talk to people who just don't own a CD player, don't own a cassette player, don't own a turntable. Right. May not even own a radio, you know, in their car. And, And it's like, well, who am I? I want to make music for people to listen to. So, you know, Spotify is, is, is really horrible. Um, but yeah, what's the choice here? Either just stop trying to make music or, you know, become, uh, you know, uh, resigned to the idea that, which is a good thing eventually anyway, is to understand like, well, my, this is not part of my audience. You know, my audience is going to be people who own CD players. That's totally fine because there are millions upon millions of people who own CD players. That's a big enough audience for me. It's just, you have to work out how to find those people because some people who are quote out of touch with, you know, the zeitgeist are out of touch with what's happening in the next five minutes may also not understand how to buy a record, how to buy a CD. You know, they could maybe figure out Amazon or figure out a thrift store. But yeah, somebody who listens to their CD player every day right now is probably not somebody with a Spotify account, which probably means they may have a tenuous relationship even to email, much less the internet. And, And so how do you figure out? And those could be people who are just old fashioned by nature or have made a, you know, a conscious decision after, you know, or a series of decisions saying, you know, I am not going to opt in. I'm not going to keep opting in Yeah. because you're taking away more than you're giving me when you ask me to opt in to, you know, making my, making Spotify my exclusive music source. You're actually taking far more from me than you're giving. It looks like you're giving me the world, but really you're, you're gutting my world and giving me practically nothing. I mean, you're talking about it uh, uh, in terms of material conditions. I, I know in a recent book, uh, Ian Svenonius was discussing all of this stuff, this sort of reliance on intangible uh, artifact as being an erasure of history. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yet at the same time, yeah, I, I'll speak to my own experience. I, my wife and I have a small house, and I have a record collection, and I have a CD collection, and at some point I'm at capacity. And I'm not sure, I'm trying to constantly make room for stuff. We're looking at our books and being like, what do we do with these things? You know, yeah. like, and, and at the same time, my kids, I, I think about their mentality when they can't watch their TV shows on Netflix a- exactly when they want to. Yeah. And that maniacal, on-demand, selfish thing that's happening. Like, Will, why isn't your record available for me? on the thing I use (laughs) digitally. I don't want the physical product because I don't know why. I mean, people have all sorts of reasons why they're consuming things and using the platforms they're using. And I just... Yeah, but I guess, you know, I've long, since since before the internet became the internet, you know, before Hoboken was for Hoboken. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I have said, you know, that kind of a, a fantasy, again, one of these unattainable fantasies was, you know, I, I would always, you know, you go into your aunt's house, you go 
into just any anybody's house, and it's it's somebody who say it's 1991, and it's somebody who has uh, a stereo or a, a boombox, and they have a CD collection, and that CD collection is 11 or 12 CDs. My yeah. fantasy has always been to be one of those 11 or 12 CDs. <laughs> to have a Bonnie Prince Billy, you know, just one. It could be any one, but just think like that's. That's when you know you've made a good record. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, and it's not like there's nothing to aspire to when it comes to something like Spotify. Like, I want to be one of what people completely ignorantly but completely fully believe is, you know, all recorded music. Yeah, yeah. They value it enough to bring it home and, and, and have it there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, but uh, yeah, but I mean, what, what does a, you know, a musician now just think like, I want to be a part of this weird fallacy that makes no money for any of the creator. You know, what do you, what is, I don't understand why someone, someone would right now, like who doesn't, you know, who's maybe unaware of potential relationship that a listener could have to an individual recording. Why would you make a recording? Yeah. I guess, you know, yeah. I, I don't, I don't really understand that. But, but, but again, that, you know, that people don't have these, you know, you don't have the space, but at the same time, you're turning over, as Spinonius was talking about, you're turning over, essentially, your concept of history to some pretty dubious caretakers of that history. Yeah, yeah. People who will tell, you know, Spotify will not argue that they have virtually every recorded song available, which is so far from the truth, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Because I know so many, you know, I... I, I, there's so many records that I have that I try to find information about on the internet and it's not available. There's yeah. no information about it. Yeah. But people will tell you everything's on the internet and so, you know, everybody's sense of history, whether it's musical history or political history or whatever, is shaped by this fallacy that the internet has everything. You have access to everything there and you just don't. Yeah. You just absolutely don't. Yeah. I agree. And uh, it's this, again... Uh, knowing the way you and I talk, this seems like something we could spend a lot more time on. But I, I, yeah, I, I, I do, yeah. <laughs> I, I totally appreciate your insights, and I appreciate your fielding some of these questions because uh, I do think they're important to address, and and I do think they have something to do with this record. Um, yeah, and, and and again, yeah, the, the you know part of the point is is that this record and these other, uh, you know, before doing a cover song. Or doing like the Ask Forgiveness covers EP is is more about you know the best way. It's like George Plimpton's you know journalistic strategies um, for a good part of his career. You know when he wanted to write about football, he joined a professional football team. When he wanted to write about boxing, he joined you know he became yeah. a boxer. Yeah, that's the idea of doing a cover song. If you want to learn, if a song intrigues you and you really want to learn how and why it intrigues you and, and, and explore the full depth of your potential relationship to that song, the best way to do it is to learn it, play it again and again, cover it, record it, perform mm -hmm. it. And, and that's up to, up to a certain point, that's, that was the, the reasoning behind doing covers, and now it really is more like, okay, this musical landscape is so chaotic and crazy and messed up, here's maybe some ways of, of for myself and hopefully for other people, making little pockets of sense out of it yeah. by by just you know drawing a line from this moment in time to another moment in time and saying that you know this is a strong line you know follow this line and you'll catch a big fish yeah it's totally fascinating that that and that makes sense to me i i want to ask you 
obviously you you love Merle Haggard and his music. Can you talk about how you encountered his music and when it spoke to you? There were different ways. Uh, hearing it off and on, um, I, you know, I, I hadn't thought about this in years, and as I've been asked to explore this relationship a little bit recently, uh, I remembered that maybe the earliest sort of recognition of what Merle Haggard is, was, or could be was, was, uh, I was, I was, uh, obsessed by, among other musicians, the music of, of Phil Oaks when I was in my teens. Mm-hmm. And he has a live record called Gunfight at Carnegie Hall in which he actively engages in kind of challenging he does his own sort of small scale and more culturally uh, invested and diverse version of, of Bob Dylan's, you know, infamous going electric at the Newport Book yeah. Festival, where he, you know, Oaks goes electric, he, he plays a version of Mona Lisa, which she re- references as a Conway Twitty cover. He plays, um, and he plays Merle Haggard's Okie from Muskogee. And, and, you know, most people would say, you know, Phil Oaks is as far on the left as somebody who could achieve any sort of fame or recognition could really be in the in the arts at that time, and and he was here, you know, citing as an influence and citing in his admiration for this music maker Merle Haggard, who most people would think of at that time as being as far on the right as somebody in popular awareness could could be, uh, and and. I don't know that that, you know, because Okie from Muskogee, I've never, it's a totally fine song, but it's never been among my favorites of, of any kind, in, in any way. It's, it's a it's a signature song, though. The signature, absolutely, it's a signature song, and, and huge to the development of of Merle as a successful artist, because he has in, in the song Leonard, which is about his friend Tommy Collins, a song that we do on Best Troubadour. Yeah. He says, you know, that you know Tommy Collins, as a friend, even brought quote even brought around a bag of groceries back before Muskogee came along. Right, uh, flying the Muskogee, Okie from Muskogee was a significant turning point in his right career. But that was so. That was the first time where, you know, I, even you know, I think even then, even if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you listen really actively to music and you heard Oki from Muskogee, you would realize that it's not some asshole. There's something weird going on in the song. It's not just <laughs> somebody saying, I'm right, you're wrong. It's, there's something kind of clever happening in the course of that song. Um, but at the same time, I'm sure that that planted a little bit of a seed. Um, and then in the, uh, and then I lived with my older brother for a while and he had a, a hits collection. It might've been the very best of the very best of Merle Haggard. I think it was a green record and Merle was on the cover with a, a vest holding a chihuahua. <laughs> and my brother pointed out a lyric in It's Not Love But It's Not Bad where he said, you know, you're slowly changing what she leaves so sad. And to my brother, which I took, you know, as gospel truth, and it may or may not be, he was like, obviously he's talking about his penis. Like he's saying, like, this new relationship isn't love, but it's, you know, it's better than nothing. And, and, and this line is about, you know, the fact that his penis was left you know, feeling sad, and now it's not feeling so sad. <laughs> okay. Um, which, you know, again, I just was like, oh, that's what that song is about. Cool. But, you know, like Phil Oaks, it planted another significant seed. No pun intended. Yeah, good, good job with that pun. That was good. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and, and you know, I, I would hear, hear songs now and then, and a couple more songs, there's the song Carolyn by Tommy Collins, which was on that collection, which is a pretty amazing song which I didn't you know now that I've been playing more of Merle's songs I realize he has a bunch of great songs that are verse chorus break repeat chorus end that's it yeah so second verse no bridge which is kind of amazing um well he's very prolific right he's among the most prolific uh yeah, writers yeah. and I he's very I, prolific he kept, yeah he kept I mean that was I mean again it's so awesome because how do you get good you keep working, you, you keep doing it. If you want to write it, and I think he was prolific because he kept trying to write the song that he wanted to write. You know, I think yeah. he knew in his, like, you know, these unattainable goals that I was talking about earlier, if you maintain the unattainable goal, that gives you something to do every day. And I think he had that. I think he knew that if he woke up and wrote the song that he always wanted to write, he would be done. And therefore, I think he had, you know, this ideal in his head of a, song he wanted to write that he didn't know you know he didn't know what it was so he had to keep writing songs in hopes that he would one day write that song well there's a certain amount of joy that he took in songwriting and excitement about it the the story about leonard that you you were talking about leonard and my understanding is that he wrote it on a bus or he finished it on a bus and made the driver pull over so that he could <laughs> sing the song to Tommy Collins on the phone, like just oh, immediately. I heard that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> so he he has the there's there's this level of excitement and enthusiasm for his. I mean, the other thing about Merle that for people who don't know, like Merle's upbringing, he was just in and out of juvenile halls and jail cells and beaten and fights and just it was I. It's amazing he came out of that the way he did. And yeah, 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 it, it is, it, and and it and it. And it 
I think one of the things that drove him was realizing at a certain point that he could put his energies one place or he could put them in another. And one of them was going to be a hell of a lot more fun than the other, and that was music. And, you know, he... I, I think it was probably, you know, kind of a revelation even, you know, and, and he could begin to say like, well, if I do that, I can't play more music. So I need to not do that and do this instead. Yeah. And I need to get my misbehaving, you know, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not uh, separating myself from the rewards of, of great misbehavior but I'm going to earn all of my misbehavior. And he, you know, he kept misbehaving until the end of his life, but he, he seemed to be sure that he earned it and that he misbehaved from kind of a secure spot. Uh, yeah. You know, I think his, his great, crazy lost years, as he would have said, were in the, I believe, like the early 80s when he would, you know, lose days at a time uh, naked and and on cocaine on his houseboat. Yeah, <laughs> but at the same time he was he was riding high. You know he had a cushion because he had hits, and his goal was to get back to it, get back to writing songs. And so when he would lose himself, it would be, I think, always understanding that he was going to get back to back to the music. Yeah, you the when you endeavor to do a, a project like Best Troubadour, and you have an artist like Merle, who, as I mentioned, is so prolific, the the selection of material is, uh, I assume, rather daunting. And I was impressed by the range uh, that you demonstrated in, in in at least tackling material from throughout his career. Um, and I, I I don't know if it's possible to. I mean, ideally, I would ask you about every song, and I'm not going to do that uh, mm-hmm. on, on some level. But can you? Is there an overarching um, thing you can say about your process in choosing this material? Uh, uh, yeah, a couple, a couple of big, big factors. One was, um, you know, fast forwarding in, in terms of my experience, you know, becoming involved with, you know, my with a passion for Merle and his music. Uh, like one of the, the the single most you know specific moment that I can remember that was you know it felt almost biblical at at the time when it happened and I it was like I went over to my friend Todd Brashear's house and he said and this was in 1996 he said you know I think like I think you might want to hear this record this new this new Merle Haggard record called 1996 mm. and from the moment it started it really you know from descriptions I've read I would say you know it felt as if I were about to have uh, and I never have but I don't have this but about to have an epileptic seizure or something like it felt like big chunks of virtual brain matter were being peeled away to reveal the core of my brain because the core of my brain was, you know, was coming up because it wanted to get closer to this music that was happening. And that, and it was, I think there was something about it. I don't just everything about it, but just the way that the, the band sounded together, the way that the singing sounded, uh, the way that the songs sounded. And from then on, I was, now I followed what Merle did specifically with writing and recording because his his live shows remained pretty 
steady and pretty sturdy and and the repertoire even didn't change much i think you know from i don't you know maybe from 1990 until his death it would it would it would be the hits did you see him i saw him many times okay yeah. good good yeah yeah and uh but yeah i started just following him closely from that time on and so i knew and, and i was also aware that for all intents and purposes, the, the public at large was not following him at that time in terms of his, you know, I would have friends who would go see him at the drop of a hat, and then I would say, oh, have you heard his new record? And they wouldn't have heard any of his new music hmm. you know, for the past 10 or 15 years. It's a weird thing, isn't it? I, I, I encounter this a lot when I see people like Bob Dylan or whoever, and, and they, it's odd. It's odd to me that you wouldn't be, you'd, you'd make the effort to attend the show, but not engage with their output. It seems strange but, to me. Well, Merle seemed to understand that as well, because like I say, he didn't change his... He wasn't... It seemed like he was running on two two paths. It, 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 it's, you know, this is me completely projecting. Sure. But it seemed like he was continuing to play shows out of you know, gratitude to the audience, out of love for the musicians that he played with, out of love for performing, and out of a need to earn money so that he could pay his musicians and so that he could continue to write songs and make records. But he never seemed to confuse the two, writing songs and making records, from a certain point when he realized, I believe, in the, around the early 90s, um, kind of, I think of it as being between, in my, you know, self-created apocryphal Merle narrative it happens between like in 1995 between the records 1994 and 1996 where he started thinking oh nobody you know radio is not interested in my records anymore record companies aren't interested in my records anymore only I am interested in my records anymore and I'm going to keep making them um, but now I'm going to make them with this other you know with this other idea in mind that I'm making it for myself or for an ideal audience or for my fellow musicians or for I don't even know who but I'm going to keep doing it and I can keep doing it and also maybe to have something on the merch table so that he can yeah sure sure and he famously you know talked about his high overhead all the time because he kept so many he kept his musicians on salary and he you know had yeah. a family and a property and a bus and um, so he had a lot of bills all the time so he would you know, tour all the time, but he di he didn't. I don't think you know if you came to his shows, he knew that you didn't have his new record, <laughs> that you didn't want his new record, and that you weren't interested in his new record. If you came to his shows, you know that was sort of, I think, a, a very realistic view of who his audience was, hmm. his live audience was. Right. So. Okay. One of the things I've noticed about you in terms of uh, your your tributes to people when you when you cover their work. Is that you have a you take a certain amount of ownership over uh, these songs? Uh, at least that's my perspective. Yeah. Uh, in in the performance and the delivery and the arrangements and and whatnot. But one of the things that I'm always struck by, or what? I, sorry, one of the things that I was quite struck by with this record is that there's a couple, and this could just be a metadata mishap. But I noticed that I'm a lonesome fugitive is uh. titled "The Fugitive." I noticed that. Uh, there's another song also. I believe it's, uh, oh yeah, Nobody's Darling is actually uh -huh. Nobody's Darling But Mine. Is that is that purposeful? Is that something you did? Is that just... Oh, so The Fugitive, I think, and, and I learned something about The Fugitive after we not only made the record but, but did all the artwork and everything. Um, 
so the fugitive something in going, you know, assuming that there's an accuracy to it, going to the, because somebody pointed out to me that I, I had uh, miscredited it, a uh, writer, as a, I thought it was a Merle Haggard song, and I had, I had even read somewhere that it was a Merle Haggard song. It isn't a Merle Haggard song. That's right, song. yeah. Um, but that's how it reads on our, you know, on our, I think we were able to change it on one of the formats. We had time still. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, but also that it, it had two names essentially, and so I think maybe it had been released as maybe it was official. I don't know. Maybe it's, I think it had been named the Fugitive, and I will the Fugitive. It has a real name and another name, and and you know, for some reason I had access to something that said the Fugitive when we. Okay, were, so it's it. I'm I'm reading too much into that. My understanding is also that it was actually based on the TV show The Fugitive, the original composition. Oh. That could be. Wow, I never, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't... Yeah, well, the song, because if you know Merle's, as I mentioned, Merle, Merle had a, a tough life, and he was yeah. uh, he was often a fugitive, for real. Like, he, he was right. chased down by, by the police, and he escaped from prisons and juvenile halls. So he was, the song seems very autobiographical, but a, apparently, from what I've read on the internet, the all-knowing internet, as we've oh, already yeah. established, uh, it was actually based on the uh, plot of the TV show, The Fugitive. So I wondered if you were making a little allusion to that, but it, it turns out it was just a... I think, you know, uh, the, uh, it, it works well because I believe it was his first big big success, and so it was a good way of... But again, that was something that I learned, you know, partway into the prep process for this record. But it works well as an introduction on the record. And, and then I also, as we were, you know, building the song list, I... You know, uh, one of the contenders that made it onto the record, which I think of it as the as the last song on the record, and then I think if I could only buy sort of the epilogue, uh, is the is I am what I am song, in which you know he opens up. He's sort of doing a little uh, uh, jingle version of of a life summary song. And he opens up by saying, "I'm no longer a fugitive," and I just thought, "Oh, that's a nice little oh, interesting. for this uh, for this record." And then, yeah, nobody's darling. I think uh, that's probably just. A, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I thought where you were going with it was going into other other parts of the record where liberties have been taken. But you just have to listen uh, a little deeper if you ever have the time. No, no, and I, I, I'm There's I'm, a lot of those. Yeah, throughout, I'm, <laughs> the I'm vaguely aware of some of those too. I was just thinking about it on a textual level because I think that those things are in following you. I, I think that there are enigmatic qualities to what you do. And part of the fun is just picking up the clues, you know? Uh-huh. And I, I think if I'm right, I think you enjoy that. Those yeah, little oh, Easter eggs or whatever you want to call them. So, and and then as I pointed out in my relationship to to Merle's work, you know, I, I am aware that maybe half of them are figments of our own imagination or our own creation, which is totally fine. I mean, because we own the records. You buy a record and you own it. That's yeah. You can do whatever you want with it in your mind once once you uh, once you own the record. But yeah. but al- al- along those lines, you know, uh, I think. One of the more, you know, going back to Merle's 1996 record, one of the more significant, you know, one of the more significant recordings of the song, performances of a, of a recorded, composed song, like, to me, is from that 1996 record, it's Merle's uh, cover of Iris Dement's No Time to Cry. Hmm. 
and in that he does a you know he does a great moralism where he I think there that she has a chorus in the song that she repeats two or three times and he only does it once and it's still a four and a half minute incredible powerhouse song and I, and he does it maybe slower than her so maybe it just wouldn't have fit I don't know or maybe just a, it works more like the Leonard song where there's just isn't a repeat it just goes right right but he uh takes a line and and it's i i you know my relationship to Merle's work has you know circumstantially has worked out so much that the the the, the life of his music in my mind has been so corroborated by you know real objective reality that it helps, you know, it just helps this relationship stay strong because I, I later, you know, I was so intrigued by this song and I had also previously been intrigued by Iris DeMent's recording of his Big City, which is on the Tulare Dust tribute record that came out, I think, in the early 1990s. Yeah. Um, and there was an article by a music writer named Nicholas Dowiedoff and that was collected in a book called In the Country of Country, and he, it's an article that basically is about these two artists, Merle Haggard and Iris DeMent, and their individual journeys, but also how they came together as as artists. And that was, you know, after years of me being completely intrigued and fascinated just by the relationship as a listener of Iris's cover of Big City to Merle's cover of no time to cry right and i guess they did a number of shows together i wish i could have seen some of those you can see some i think online maybe but but in his cover of no time to cry she has a line in it where she says she opens a verse and she says you know i can still remember uh when i was a girl and you know what's merle going to do with that <laughs> so merle says and it's just i mean he says I can still remember before there was a Merle. <laughs> and it was just like, whoa, he took that, you know, like, talk about a master, you know, he took that line and he didn't replace it, you know, like a lot of people, if they're singing a ballad that's about a long lost male love and it's a man singing, he'll cop out and sing it was a long lost female love or whatever. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't even do that. <laughs> he, he creates like this weird conundrum within the line itself. Like, what does that even mean? And he's, you know, it's like the song is so, the way he sings it especially is so rich and like, because it's about being older and taking stock and how you deal with emotions. And he's like, how is he dealing with he did, you know, who is he? Before there was a Merle, what does that remember mean? You know, he said, I can remember that. And, and that kind of ownership of somebody else's song, a great song, you know, by a great songwriter and an incredible singer, he has owned it and taken nothing away from it, but he's made it also a Merle Haggard song that lives alongside of Iris DeMent's song. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't own it and steal it. He just owns it. And like he's so he's super generous about owning it by by saying you know you know this is her song, and yet he's like I'm gonna I'm gonna own it for the time that I'm singing it I'm gonna own it, and so that 
that occupation of the song is something that, you know, a huge lesson that I've taken in terms of covering anybody's songs, but also in approaching this record and in approaching many of the specific individual songs along the way, thinking like, okay, obviously I love this. Obviously I love all of these songs. Obviously I love Merle Haggard. Obviously I love the artists that he loves, or at least in the way that he loves them. I can appreciate them. Yeah. Um, but I'm also... You know, I want to show that love by, you know, by embodying it, entering it, owning it as much as I possibly can. And that means whatever you, mod- you know, what if you just change a chord or he does uh, uh, Jimmy Rogers, my old pal. And out of curiosity, you know, I listened to Jimmy Rogers, my old pal, and Merle had messed with it. Right. And I don't know if it's because like the errors that we did in terms of the title of Nobody's Darling or I'm a Lonesome Fugitive. Maybe he just didn't look it up. He was did it from memory. Yeah, yeah. You know, because he knows Jimmy Rogers' music so well. He's like, let's do My Old Pal. How about that? And played it from memory. Or maybe he was doing Lefty Frizzell's version, which I think was on the first... Uh, I think Lefty Frizzell's first record was a 10-inch EP of Jimmy Rogers' songs, and he did My Old Pal. And, and you can hear... It, it sounds more like a Lefty Frizzell song than a Jimmy Rogers song when Merle does that song. Yeah. Yeah, this is all. Then, you know, why don't why don't we? You know, and then so we in there we we made a, a hybrid. You know, it's a hybrid Lefty Frizzell, Jimmy Rogers, Merle Haggard, Bonnie Prince Billy song. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I so enjoyed uh, your version of Haggard like I've never been before is because I could kind of picture you enjoying it. If that makes sense, like oh yeah, I could picture you like you say. Oh, you own it, and it's funny to hear you own that song. Uh, right. And, yeah, and I, yeah. I I appreciated that very much. That was that was a late comer because it just seems you know uh, if someone had said why don't you, you know that's a great song you should do it I I, I probably would have thought oh, that's a stupid idea <laughs> how, could, how could you do that <laughs> and then for some reason it just seemed and then once we started playing it 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 was just it it happened, you know, it happened so well and it was so much fun. Yeah. So much fun to play. Yeah. And I, it's palpable. I think it's, it's obvious to me that, that you were kind of tickled doing that one. That's, that's my take on that. Yeah. And yes. then we got, you know, and then Emmett, that was one the one song that Emmett Kelly gets on. And yes, that's right. Yeah. 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 Well, I, funny or so awesome on it. we, we started this conversation talking about, um, I guess sort of celebrity death in our relationship yeah. to to those those people but I think what I've come across a lot more as people become more enlightened and more assertive about equality is this conflation of work and character uh, a person's a person's output as an artist and and how they carry themselves as a person from your perspective did Merle's character have an impact on you the way his work did I believe so, and and this is you know this is getting a little farther into my construction. You know that's that's something I can't know Merle's character except from the evidence. You know, in the same way that we can't know anything about Jesus Christ except for these ridiculous books that were written about him a hundred years after he died. Sure, you can only guess. You know what the truths are and what you know what what the person. I don't know. You know, I can only, yeah, I can only triangulate and say, based on these things, you know, my understanding of what his character was, and and, and insofar as that goes, yeah, 
but I'm totally projecting. You know, sure. Totally. No, I, it, it, as you say, it's evidence. It's his, his, as I mentioned a few times now, his history is, there's a criminal history there. There's a, uh, he, he obviously had the tendencies of a, of an addict. He was a heroic figure. He was a genuine, you know, we can, we often talk about country music and outlaw culture. He was generally, genuinely rather, I think <laughs> his own person in so many ways. And, yeah. um, and, and I would say he has the tendencies of a substance abuser rather than an addict, which, which that's you know, true. Sure. There are, there are some people who are, and I'm, I'm, I feel blessed to, to, to be one of them who are born without, you know, a really debilitating addictive gene. So, yeah. Yeah. and I think Merle must have been as well because he did, he, he had his relationships with alcohol and cocaine and, and, None of them consumed him, so that so he was an abuser rather than an addict. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think he again. I think it's all part and parcel of the fact that I'd, it's weird. I he I don't think he was. Um, I think he valued life. Uh, yeah. And certainly did more towards. Uh, at some point, he just something clicked for him. But I, there was a point where I, it didn't seem like he did. Um, yeah. No. He was he was constantly pretty brutal about about things. You know. There's there's it, it was. And, and you know, I, I did this song with uh, with uh, Greg Weeks and Meg Barrett on the Ask Forgiveness record, the uh, um, the way I am, which I guess is written by Sonny Brockmorton. But you know, he sings it with such conviction when he says, you know, wish I enjoyed what makes my living, right? You know, did what I do with a willing hand, you know, and and it's that's so cool that at the same time he's doing something beautifully and well and not you know he doesn't have that Nina Simone thing where his you know bitterness and anger is you know intensely evident at almost every moment of his you know recorded life Hmm. it's it's not you hear so much joy in what he does he just happens to throw in you know when he has a bad day he puts it in a song and he throws it in there and it doesn't mean that he's overall a bitter person because then he writes a you know a beautiful happy song appreciating family appreciating love appreciating music yeah but he you know he allows for a complicated persona he was also a, a tremendous tremendous singer which I assume you appreciate not only do I appreciate it but yeah I mean he was a tremendous singer from the beginning who continued to to you know distinctly develop and and really you know I think again I think whatever decision, whatever happened to him in the mid-90s, I feel like from then on he started to really explore what he could do with his voice um, without getting self-indulgent or outrageous, but just he became so much of a more interesting singer. I guess he was always such a great singer and a compelling singer, and then all of a sudden he became, in addition to all those, an interesting singer. Yeah. And I, I'll, 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 like, I haven't listened to very much late Joni Mitchell, but I have listened hundreds of times to her, you know, late re-recording of both sides now with the orchestra mm-hmm. when her voice has become, you know, a distinctly different instrument than it was in her early years of, of recording and how she just knows that, you know, it doesn't matter because she knows her body, she knows her breath capacity, she knows her voice, she knows how to do it. And that's how, you know, and so she, she's mastered like if if she were you know like in heaven can wait or you know she were thrown into somebody else's body she could make that voice box thing you know right. i believe yeah. that yeah and merle similarly 
you know, as his voice changed, as his world changed, his life changed, he continued to make his voice a stronger and better uh, instrument to to relay a lyric and or to put a, to put a song across, which is so exciting because again, so many singers, you just I started, you know, you if you didn't hear Joni Mitchell or you didn't hear Merle Haggard, if you listen to you know almost every other popular successful singer in English language, you know, recorded music, you would just assume, oh, your voice declines, you are not as good a singer as you get older. That's just what happens. Right. It isn't necessarily what happens. I think, it, I think you know, life maybe becomes complicated, or maybe the body breaks down, or maybe you just don't practice, and maybe you just don't care about your voice as much. I don't know, yeah. but it, it's not what happens. It's, it's not what happens if you do think, I need to sing this song, and whatever voice I have, you know, I'm waking up with today, I, I have to use that voice. And Merle had fun with it. Yeah, I, I, I hear you there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate this this discussion, Will. I, I, I want to ask you what's coming up next for you in terms of plans, in terms of projects, uh, and even if you have thought about how you're going to be, if you're going to be presenting this record uh, live uh, in any capacity. Yeah. Well, it, it gets a little a little complicated in, in, you know, uh, there were so many, uh, as I alluded to, there were so many things that transformed the record over the course of uh, it's, you know, from the conception of it to the making of it and the release of it. It's, uh, um, and, and the formula or the idea that I've come up with, the strategy, strategy that I've come up with going forward with this record or with the Mekon's record or with, the Epic Jammers and Fortunate Little Ditties record with Bitch and Bajas yeah. is that, you know, I will, we will be touring these records, you know, sporadically over the course of the next three or four or five decades. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I think I yeah. understand what you mean. Yeah. Okay. And, and it will, it will, yeah, it will, uh, rather than force any one thing to happen, now, you know, especially now, we, we have there's no reason to make something happen that that you know sh- that shouldn't happen and and i know that we want to play these songs ideally with the exact group of core uh uh I guess there's right seven eight eight of us you know core eight of us on this record that's that's the ideal and that's what i would like to make happen and and I can only assume that it will at some point, if not different permutations over the course. I've got to play shows. I've got to play three solo shows over the course of the next week. I'm sure I'll play some Merle songs. I'm going to play Mama Tried, even though my friend Oscar sang it when we were when we recorded it and re- released it as sort of a pre preview single thing. It's not yeah. on the record, you know. Yeah. But he also he he sells a lot of my merch over the years, and he made some leather bracelets that have Mama Tried stamped into it. So I'm going to. In honor of Oscar, I'm going to sing it so that I can sell those bracelets. <laughs> made them, and they're going to be on the merch table. All right. Well, that that sounds excellent. Any any plans to come to Canada again? Man, maybe. I just had to deal with all this just from playing Calgary last year, which was in, was so so great. It was so so awesome playing that with with uh, we did that with Bitch and Bajas and yeah, playing playing that set for the Calgary Folk Festival audience was like one of the great. You know, I feel like one of the, for me one of the more fulfilling moments of my live music life. Oh wow! Uh, wow. But that said, you know, Canada took so much money, and then you know, and then I had to hire a Canadian 
accountant who also took a lot of money. And eventually, uh, you know, I think we did make out, you know, where we got some of it back. But it's it's just a lot of work playing in Canada. Yeah, I've heard, and I'm sorry, so, but yeah. I'm mean to you at the border. But I understand. I would be mean to an American if I were a Canadian <laughs> right now. Right. Although I guess that kind of attitude isn't going to make things any better, I guess. No, we're we're all going to have to get through this together somehow. It's uh, we are. difficult. I'm afraid to travel to America right now, and I'm a Canadian citizen, but <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's troubling for me to contemplate walking down streets in America these days, um, or yeah. Canada, you, frankly. You got a funny name. You got to watch out when you come. I got a funny name. I look funny. Yeah, that's yeah. that's where I'm at. Yeah. Well, is there a song from Best Troubadour that uh, we can go out on here, Will? Uh, how about would uh, wouldn't that be something? Sure. Why did that come to mind? Um, because we were, you know, talking. We were highlighting a moment ago or five minutes ago some of Merle's orneriness, and that's, I think, just such a awesome example. Of, I don't know, you know, how. I think one of the great things about you know Merle's dedication to his songwriting is that he can, he could, you know, at any stage. He could find himself in a mood of uh, childlike, optimistic reflection yeah. and be able to write a song about it uh, because he would stay in practice and he didn't think that it would sound, you know, ridiculous or out of place or immature for, for you know, a person at his stage in life to write such a, you know, a great, happy song. And it's and it and it just has uh, I don't know just has beautiful imagery and and as we talk about what's scary right now or rockets in flight that may not uh, yeah benefit us he's he's talking about a, a rocket flight that actually serves a good purpose. This is from 1989, I think, uh, isn't it's it? Not, like the the Merle record, the Merle song. I mean, um, yeah, it's from there's I in you know I listened to two versions regularly in in like prepping the song list and then just I still you know in, in prepping performance there's two versions there's one from the record from the uh, yeah from the 80s is it 501 501 Blues yeah, yeah that's right Blues. yeah and then then he he made a, a pretty cool record with part of the Del McCurry band that he co-released on Del McCurry's label and Hag Records in the you know, maybe 2005 or something like that, called the Bluegrass Session. That's right. Yeah, another yeah. great version of that. So it, I, I listened equally to both of those, and before thinking about this record, and while while making this record. Okay. Well, this is wouldn't that be something from the new Bonnie Prince Billy record, Best Troubadour? Uh, Will, uh, you know this. It's always a great pleasure to have you uh, on this show and to talk to you generally. So thank you for this, and, and best of luck with everything. And next time we talk, maybe I can work my way up to, say, like a 2015 level of technology and we can uh, talk in some newfangled format. Form, format. <laughs> Sounds like a deal to me. Thanks, Will. All right. Take it easy, V. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? If I spread my wings and showed you I could fly away Wouldn't that be something If I asked you to fly with me on some wild and windy day Wouldn't that be something 
We both fell together and you threw your arms around me like you needed me. Wouldn't that be something? Hey, wouldn't that be something? You'd probably laugh if you could see the dream I had last night. You and I together on a maiden rocket flight. You were seated there beside me with that happy and frightened look. You and I got young again on that rocket flight we took. Now wouldn't that be something? Could look at me and see somebody great again. Wouldn't that be something? If you should sing to me today, I started loving you again. Wouldn't that be something? If we could look inside each other's minds and always find each other when we needed to. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? Best Troubadour, which is out everywhere, courtesy of Drag City Records. That was a song called Wouldn't That Be Something, as performed by Bonnie Prince Billy and company. Uh, that song originally appeared on 1989's 501 Blues by Merle Haggard. And uh, this this record, as you know, now is a, a tribute to Merle. So I'm not exactly sure what I've done to uh, deserve this uh, these opportunities to speak with uh, Will as much as I do, but uh, I always really value them, uh, and I want to thank Will again for being on this program. And uh, please check out his uh, work if you're if you're not familiar with it. Uh, find all the Bonnie Prince Billy records you can. You can learn more about them at DragCity.com, and uh, certainly pick up Best Troubadour. It's wonderful. So there you go. This is the 317th episode of the Creative Control Podcast, which is available courtesy of many fairly giant corporations, including iTunes, Audio Boom, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, 
Overcast. These are all podcast platforms that feature my show, and you can learn more about it uh, in general at my website, vishkana.com. You can also go to patreon.com to make a flexible monthly donation to keep the podcast going. Also, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at vishcreative, and listen to a version of the show every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time at cfru.ca around the world, or... If you're in the area of Guelph, CFRU 93.3 FM. I uh, could not be doing anything I do, really, without the support of some fine sponsors in Guelph. Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in town. Call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery, or check them out at trocaderoguelph.ca. Also, the Bookshelf, a local cultural hub located at 41 Quebec Street. You can learn more about them at bookshelf.ca. And for the finest coffee anywhere, try Planet Bean Freshly Roasted Fair Trade Certified Organic Coffee. They have some cafes in Guelph, but they're also distributing their beans throughout Ontario. So for more information about uh, this fine coffee, planetbeancoffee.com. Well, that's it for this show, and uh, I, I thank you uh, for listening to this episode. There's, Like I say, there's, this is the 317th Will has been on the show. I think this is like the third time that he's been on this particular uh, program. So uh, maybe scroll back and find those episodes and uh, find some others too, if you if you don't mind. And again, if you're on those uh, company websites uh, that uh, feature the podcast, subscribe to the show, download episodes, rate the show, review the show, tell your friends about the show because it uh, helps if you spread the word. Okay, that's it for me. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.